0: and uh, Ram Chobe, a uh, co-contributor to the linguistic survey of India, noted in their folk tales from North India the story of a kaista clerk who started a quarrel with the Sipahi. Badgering the humble clerk, the soldier threatened to the kaista, I will knock out your teeth. The pro- now the protocol for dispensing pay included establishing a physical description of each soldier, so the unamused kaista military Mir Bakshi inserted in the margins two teeth missing. When the verbally abusive soldier returned to collect his pay, the kaisa refused, pointing out that his appearance did not match the form's requirements. So frustratingly, the soldier was only able to collect his pay after he knocked out his own two teeth. This was perhaps the Kaistha's preferred method of resolving conflict, uh, vicarious passive aggression through the pen. Uh, now while anecdotal, Crooks and Chobi's tale point to a frustrating dynamic that would have faced any visitor to India in 1900. It was the power of middling scribes and bureaucrats to frustrate the lives of countless people. zamindar's claims to tax-free assessment dashed, A Nizam's embarrassment when papers revealed his financial dealings. A revenue farmer's tax liability ramped up when faced with compromising documents. Paper in India possessed a unique ability to level the playing field between the high and the low, the pure and the impure, the landless and the landed, and the ruler and ruled. Much of this had been built up during the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Its most profound manifestation, the British Raj, by 1900, was a true kagaz Raj, or paper empire. British India had become one of the most procedural, paper-intensive administrations on the planet. Paper and ink were used to administer the lives of hundreds of millions of subjects across a large swath of southern Asia. In administering the Indian subcontinent, to use the old cliché, the pen was often mightier than the sword. Uh, Now I'm going to go a bit quicker over the historiography in terms of time on state formation. I think it's familiar to a lot of us, Uh, but I will point out a few things. Uh, Historians have largely attempted to describe the transition from Mukhal, to British empires, in macro terms, uh, looking at the state and larger institutions such as landholding, warrior classes, and broader economic change. And over the past few generations, the accumulation of this literature has really done a lot to enrich our understanding uh, of the emergence of colonial rule. I mean, we now know so much more about how merchant families, warrior scions, and new British institutions all shaped the colonial state. It's a much more colorful and richer picture than the long peddled view that prevailed probably into the early 1980s of a chaotic 18th century which only recovered with the uh, settling aspects of British administration. Yet perhaps ironically, for our sophisticated understanding of 18th century transitions to colonial rule, one of the most significant changes has been taken as axiomatic, and that's increased taxation. This is surprising, for this affected everyone, from cultivators to -to soon-to-be-pensioned-off rajas. Our historical literature is kind of mute about changes in revenue administration and the more mundane daily rhythms of fiscalism and fiscal practice. It is seen almost as axiomatic to the point of not requiring any investigation. For example, Muzaffar Alam has argued that the Nawabi and Sikh domains were hamstrung by gaps between what they calculated as assessment and what they actually collected. And this really begs explanation. Well, How and why was this so? And now, did this gap change under the company? Uh, Indeed, the late Chris Bailey noted how scribal castes, mainly Kayasthas, served as crucial pensmen for 18th century kingdoms. But how were they crucial? What happened to their positions and skills after the 1780s? Now, these are all cru- crucial questions because they open up a window into the world of the scribe and how they linked large agrarian tracts with townships, urban capitals, and ultimately imperial treasuries. The increased tabulation and collection of revenue from India's agrarian tracts was, for all its mundaneness, the single greatest contributor to companies' power in India. Fiscalism was the lifeblood of the army, the legal system, and the eventual system of colonial administration, and the campaigns that were fought between Singapore and Spiong for the British flag. Larger debates over landholding, caste, and society in a way have somewhat overshadowed these tedious yet very crucial developments between empires. So this paper aims to contribute not just to our understanding of 18th century India, uh, but also to, in a way, the history of the scribe. Uh, Because in arguing for a more central role for fiscalism in understanding the emergence of the colonial state, uh, we have to look at scribes. And, And they're a very interesting category. They fit really neither an elite, in most parts of India, an elite or sub- nor subaltern category. Um, as some of us probably know pretty well, a special 2010 edition of the economic, Indian Economic and Social History Review uh, began to explore the roles that scribes and pensmans played as agents of historical change and, and also how they supported Indian kingdoms. Um, more recent works also by Bhavani Rahman and Rajiv Kinra have further expanded our understanding of the worlds of the scribe. Uh, offering new views on historical change ranging from the Mughal Darbar to the Kacheri in Tamil Nadu. Um, so what this paper aims to do is to explore the broader histories of a collection of scribal families known as Kayasthas, and particularly North Indian Kayasthas, not the, the Prabhus of Western India uh, for this paper. Uh, Kayasthas were a group who the late John Richards called the technicians of the state. They had integrated themselves into the middling ranks of paper managers, copyists, and letter writers. Some reached the heights of respected munshis and divans, authoring administrative manuals or uh, dasturo amals. Yet, strangely enough, historians have paid scant attention to kaistas in India's modern history, and there may be a charitable explanation for this. Um, Hindustan scribes, for example, rarely engaged in revenue farming and advances for cash crop production. Also, kaistas who dominated the positions of patwaris and kanungos never graced a Mughal court or a governor general. They also possessed fairly ambiguous caste rank in terms of their dvija or their twice-born status. Indeed, probably Karen Leonard is the only historian to fully engage with Caius as a group, demonstrating how they were essential for the Nizam's administration deep into the colonial period. Yet, long ago, some hinted at a far far greater role for Kaisthas in North India's history. Eric Stokes once observed that Kanungos and Patwaris, who were almost overwhelmingly Kayastha, were the only real sources of revenue information for British settlement officers after the 1810s. For by the early 1700s, these scribes had bolstered the revenue tentacles of Awadh, Bengal, and elsewhere. They increasingly shaped regional kingdoms, their accounts, and above all, their abilities to wage war. So what I'd like to do now is start with a brief overview of the 18th century landscape in terms of fiscalism in regional kingdoms and practice. Um, Specifically, pre-British Awad is a really good starting point from which we can draw some initial comparisons. What we see here as demonstrated uh, by Richard Barnett is that pre-British Awad had an increased appetite, an increased fiscal penetration of the countryside. It was taxing more and more aggressively. Further explanation of the historical evidence also suggests that Awad, between 1770 and 1830, witnessed a significantly ramped up revenue administration made possible by the Saxena Caius the families of Unao. What we see more broadly in pre-British Awad, in a way to a degree like Bihar and to some degree Bengal, is that revenue traditions and practices were more corporate and interconnected than their later more legalized and procedural manifestations under the company. Harnessing the fiscal might of the pre-colonial state involved a constellation of intermediary groups. uh, And it had exceptions and flexibility that, if anything, demonstrated a great deal of fiscal activity in 18th century Awad. Uh, One particular Persian work, the composition of Muhammad Feq, or the Inshayi Feq, gives us a rich insight into how revenue collection worked in parts of Awad before the British conquest. Now, the author uh, lived in late 1700s around Sultanpur as a minor official for the Nawabs. And his son, Abdul Ahmad, later worked for, as for the British resident uh, in Lucknow. Now, Feik described the middle Doab district of Sultanpur in the 1820s sort of a liminal period when Nawabi authority was being sandwiched by increasing company demands and the Nawab's penetration of the countryside. What Feik offered was what we'd call a moral template for fiscal extraction. It was one that taxed intensely, especially surpluses, But was equally sensitive to the constellation of interconnected middlemen and individuals that actually made it possible. This interconnectedness was a form of binding which made a wide variety of groups, from cultivators to sepahis, in a way stakeholders in a much wider process. Uh, Fink argued that for any locale to be inhabitable, or adabat, cultivators needed to pay taxes on what he called the vegetative powers of the soil, and for this sophisticated and accurate records were needed, and the volume could be stunning. These documents detailed a number of categories, who paid, when they were made, and most importantly, who defaulted. But in a nod to entrenched realities, Fech understood the powerful fabric of local village society. He advised that it took time to persuade Zamindars to re- fully reveal their holdings, knowing full well that fellow Hindu Kanungos and Pathwaris played a very mischievous role in helping their shield their lands from the taxman. But the system, if it was one, if we can call it that, does seem to have been effective. And we can look at this by looking at the overall revenues, for example, of the Unal district, where the Saxena thus held significant sway and dominance. For example, under Akbar in, 16, uh, in 1600, Unal yielded about four, 452,000 rupees. Yet by the 1855, under the Nawabs, it yielded close to a million, nearly a doubling. And most of the gains had come after the 1740s. It also seems that both revenue farming, ijara, and revenue, direct revenue collection from cultivators, or amani, uh, were used. And it was fairly flexible, but it does seem that revenue farming, or ijara revenue, became predominant over the late 1700s. For example, in some awa districts, they grew shali rice, which was harvested roughly three months before the normal Kharif crop, often around July or August. To further encourage increased cultivation, Taxes paid in advance were rewarded with discounts, or takfifs, on future and current assessments. We can get another insight from one other North Indian scribe named Chathar Mal. His grandfather, Bakht Mal, wrote administrative manuals in the time of Emperor Muhammad Shah. Chathar's Guide to the Treasury, or what we could, uh, we could call it that in Persian, it's divan e Pasand, dates from the 1820s. It was a sophisticated system for accounting and agrarian taxonomy, and outlined a whole process of revenue collection that was nuanced and granular in detail, particularly punctuated by paper. Mal seems to have written this manual for the company with the aim of providing a guide to collectors who were fanning it out across North India after the early 1800s. And it was kind of a regulatory guide, you know, sort of offering sort of insight as to how do you negotiate with farmers and the laws related to sharing and renting farms. It included methods for calculating the share of each farmer and describing the best periods of the year for planting very specific seeds. For example, each good that could be listed on sort of revenue form had a numbered index, which was used to multiply the different goods by its weight. So in this sense it was somewhat procedural, but they were not inflexible. For example, tax collectors, who we call malguzars, were required to make inquiries to cultivators through zamindars about failed or rotten crops with the point being to calculate this into the rate of assessment. There was also a personal dimension to this. Discussion and consultation, with a significant degree of leeway for local sovereignty via zamindars, characterized the sinews of revenue collection. Individuals did not communicate via procedural paperwork. For example, both district authorities, the Sarkars and malguzars, were required to engage zamindars face-to-face to be sure that they were not displeased, Nazari, with the arrangements. And before any final revenue schedule, what we call a bandobast, could be drawn up, zamindars had to be in agreement in agreement with the order in order to mitigate future disagreements and uh, disputes later. And since it was one of the most sensitive and contestable dimensions to assessment, the personal interactions mattered. Calculated losses were incorporated into the final rates on five-year terms, what we call uh, a bandobast de panch with, ver- with the vagaries of the monsoon complicating the projections for sovereigns, Mal noted a simple solution. If a harvest had suddenly more the prior year, which would have been written down naturally, then the tax rate would be historicized, based upon ten year averages. This, in turn, required volumes of paperwork to track in detail historical rates of return. In a way, this seemingly almost previewed the later British collector's obsession with historical averages of particular districts, which, if anyone's read sort of, you know, district memoirs of old ICS men, punctuate sort of their proceeding of the writings in these books. Um, Now, what I'll do is talk very quickly about um, Muslim rule and the Indo-Islamic cultural world and where Caius does fit within this. Kaistas um, largely came over centuries to dominate the position of what we would basically translate as the registrar, the kanungo, which comes from the Persian kanunga, or of the law or of the custom. Uh, the kanunga as a repository of local agrarian knowledge seems to have been largely the result, it seems, of the reforms of Akbar and Raja Mal after the 1560s. In the local village economy, these kanungos became the cultural and customary interpreters for the sprawling Mughal fiscal administration. It seems that the first mention of the name Kanungo was in the records of Sher Shah Suri, actually, who needed them to show what villages had produced in order to complete what we call the rentrol, or the Hastobud, what is and what was. It's an historical record. One of the reasons was due to their local knowledge of custom as it related to agriculture and various castes because they had, quote, an intimate acquaintance with the country, including grain types, seasonal variations, and soil qualities. Muslim rulers seems to have been partial to Kayasthas, mainly for administrative expediency. They were considered, quote, the most trusted of the Hindus during the Mohammedan period, especially as Brahmins largely shunned service in North India under India's new ruler, save obviously in Maratha country. And what we see over generations is that these scribes stitched themselves into the fabric of administration across North India. They connected the courts and chancellors of power with the larger Indian agrarian hinterland. And as the British would later find, these scribes were the key to fiscal supremacy um, in North India. Now, Hindustan scribes in these kaistas increased their ability to mold the character of regional states and kingdoms over the 18th century. Their skills of paper management and accountancy became increasingly important for uh, extending cultivation, documenting revenue receipts, and organizing military finance. They dominated the lower tiers of the broader all-India Mughal revenue system. Kanungos and Patwaris became crucial transit points for these kingdoms and their agrarian hinterlands. For example, these officers made the tabulation of rent rates, the assessment, the Jama, the audit of accounts, Bujarut, Bujarut, and the general wheels of revenue administration moved. Various Kaistas converted their skills and traditions of clerical service as registrars, secret letter writers, Khufiya Navis, newswriters, Akbarats, revenue reporters, Jama Navis, budget number writers, Shomar Navis, and as surveyors. Caesthels excelled particularly in the art of copying manuscripts from Mancolat, which itself became an almost proto-bureaucratic function by the late 17th century, in order to make duplicates of news reports, illustrated manuscripts, and secret political intelligence. Yet most importantly, these officers and their skills helped 18th century revenue machines dig deeper into the agrarian hinterland. Caes scribes became fixed to the wheel spokes of revenue management and governance. Now, North Indian, Indian Kayasthas held positions which were largely within the fabric of local village uh, society at the lowest subdivision, sort of the Pargana. They constituted what Irfan Habib has called the second layer of revenue management in Mughal, India. But perhaps these second tier scribes were, upon closer inspection, perhaps more important than Habib originally envisioned. The most common position for Persian literate Kayasthas were the Kanungo and the Patwari. Kaista kanungos were usually salaried, drawing upon funds through local malguzars and often received a cess or a sudoi equal to 2% of revenue collection. This gave them an incentive to ensure that all was done to yield full collections, though it's difficult to draw out any picture of how regular this actually was. In terms of numbers, the kanungoship was nearly held, quote, held always by one of the Kaith class or the kayastha, and they came to nearly monopolize the position over generations. The Kanungo became, in a way, the center of local agrarian production. They managed registrars which included accounts, demarcations, yields, annual returns, payments, debts, and countersigned receipts. Now, what I'm going to move very quickly uh, to look at, sort of, in a way, the impact of the company's administration uh, in what we would call the conquered and ceded provinces, which sort of wrap around sort of Awad uh, after 1803. Um, The company, in particular, had a paper obsession and orientation that it seems to have drawn upon older officers and, importantly, their physical records when it came to give sanction to what would later become fairly savage revenue demands. Specifically, the early company worked with extant Caius the pensman in enacting the revenue settlements that would, in some way, eventually fund Britain's Indian Empire. Now, North Indian scribes positioned themselves as mediators during this transition. One example was a pensman named Sanbulal. Lal was the Munshi of Raja Chait Singh of Benares, and was later then to the British resident, Francis Folk. Lal offered a specific guide to the city's new rulers. Um, he offered a guide as the best way to manage what he called the wealth of the country, or the Zarhaya E Padishahi. Lal's guide was a refinement and what he called a Safshode, or a cleaning up of regulations and compilations, passed down from the Munshi's of Benares. It was, in a way, almost a fiscal intelligentsia for the company. Lal encouraged folk to work through the Munshis and respected men of letters in Benares in their Right Letter Writing House, or the Darul Insha. These Munshis, he argued, knew all the regulations and had their fingers on the pulse of the country. Lal noted that Munshis possessed the most valuable information regarding taxation and the regulations and customs, and that the Raja of Benares and Zamindars knew far less. Here, Lal positioned these almost proto-bureaucratic munchis as the key to the region's future prosperity and an indeed fiscal might. He noted that the the, uh, letter writing house's writers knew the proper ordering of revenue documents and that they should consist of what they should consist of and how to order and preserve them to make them accessible for consultation. Lal argued that the administration needed procedure and regulation and that the company also wanted this. There was also the question of trust. Lal claimed that uh, for the Munshi, the Munshi's were the most trusted source of fiscal information on taxes, land rights, and tenures. Unlike the mass of urzis, or petitions, which Lal argued created instability, Benar's scribes uh, possessed the regulations and consistency which would fit with the city's new, more procedural-minded overlords. Lal invited folk to improve, rather than uh, change, the regulations, the zabata, for governance and taxes, and he urged the company to create a new administrative manual, which, perhaps unsurprisingly, would be authored by himself and the city's munshis. Um, So what we see here is that beyond suggestions, uh, the pensmen of Hindustan also provided very concrete fiscal knowledge for the company's early fiscal machinations. In Benares under Jonathan Duncan, for example, Duncan saw, for example, the chasm between law and revenue collection as the difference between despotism and just regular administration. This desire that Duncan had to legalize revenue administration and the chain of processes therein is what partially propelled these scribes into newfound importance. Well, the things they possessed in particular were jama or revenue agreements and hastabuds or historical rent rolls, and these provided the factual sanction for these new imposed sort of uh, uh, agrarian sort of assessments. These subordinate Hindu paper managers played a formative role in the company's North Indian settlements and were crucial to the company's first skeletal revenue structures. For example, the Kanungos of Sa- uh, Saktisgarh uh, continually frustrated Jonathan Dun- Duncan's assessments during negotiations in 1785 and 1786 which kept him, as he put it, quote, helpless. They, not the company, possessed historical rent rates on paper which gave them a negotiated hand in negotiating tax rates. Without these, these, the basis for negotiated rent rates could not proceed for to gain any idea of what was collected before, settlement officers by their own sort of imposition needed to draw upon historical precedent. Uh, and Outside of Benares, uh, Duncan saw local Kanungos as the key to legitimizing settlements, as they had been, quote, "...far more ready to enter into qabuliyats, or revenue agreements, than in any place I have hitherto been." And Caius, the Kanungos commanded significant local loyalty regarding collections of revenue and the storage of accounts, particularly in smaller villages. And in a way, this might explain why they rarely had legal cases brought against them in both uh, the criminal courts, the Nizamat Adalat, or the Revenue Courts, the Divani Adalat. And maybe why, perhaps, these scribes have escaped the eyes of historians. Such paper power was seen during Jonathan Duncan's uh, settlement of Shadiabad after 1785. Here, the local Kanungo's mastery, force over paper, forced one Mendi Ali Khan to complain, quote, This year, Fastly 1196 or 1786, I am the loser of 2,640 rupees. This loss and penalty have not been incurred by your fixing the rental rate too high, but from the goodwill of the Kanungos and their defeat of understanding. Now, couched in sardonically flowery language, it was a direct finger at the subordinate clerical group which had buttressed Tamiri rule since the mid-1600s. For in a society that was possessed far from universal literacy, Fiscal paper manipulation was often as powerful as an imperial pharma. Duncan's settlement of Benares in the later 1780s picked up, and the role of these scribes increased immensely. Canungos were some of the first recognizable officers the British worked with in order to enact legitimate, yet ruthless, rent demands. Paperwork and documentation were needed to make such extractions of wealth possible. For example, Duncan sought out revenue records going back 10 years as a basis for new negotiations. And he argued that these scribes quote, were so materially useful for carrying on the various details of the collection, as well as the quality of amicable arbitration, umpires, in many instances, that never reached any regular court, and in the capacity of witnesses and suits relative zamindari rites or suitors of the adalat that their assistance could not be disposed with. And this was particularly important. Because in Benares in the 178 after 1785, uh, nearly one fifth of all assessed revenue could not be collected due to continual property disputes going through the legal courts, and this is often where Caius the Canungos, goes. Their papers, particularly the hastabus, the historical rent rolls, and the Jamabandis, the revenue agreements, were actually used by British magistrates to adjudicate sort of property dispute cases. Uh, in the courts, and they regularly refer to the records of the kanungos in terms of actually adjudicating these disputes. In fact, even famed revenue farmers such as Shio Lal Dubey of Johnpur could f- be frustrated by the paper authority these kanungos could exert. Dubey, for example, accused the Benars kanungos of forging estimates or dolls, which effectively took villages in Rori out of his ownership. With the British seeking the most expedient form of sanction for the revenue demands, these humble officers' cooperation and the documentation they provided uh, were essential. So, what I'd like to move now more into uh, move now into is to move into the more of the bu- emergence of what we call like sort of bureaucratic procedural forms of government, which this paper, in a degree, the book really argues, sort of orbits around the early sort of revenue settlements of North India. Now, the mid to late 18th and early 19th centuries were periods which saw increased scope for Indian kingdoms, including the company, to document and tabulate authority through taxation and paper. These processes of state formation, which were most noticeable in most regional kingdoms, were vital in vaulting kaisthas into positions to mold regional fiscalism. Middling subordinate pensmen quickly found their skills in paper, pensmanship, and accounting valuable for any aspiring regional power, be they Nawabi, Maratha, or British. And if anything, the regionalization of Mughal power enhanced the political value of paper, pen, and by extension, those who commanded them. What is remarkable is that between 1770 and 1830, so many of these scribes found ready demand for their services, not simply by creating themselves anew, but by drawing upon skills which they had honed for generations. And here, a very close analysis of how the company gained its grip on North India's agrarian uh, wealth reveals that these pensmen helped extend an agrarian tax base that would eventually fund Britain's Indian Empire. And it is here that we see the origins of more bureaucratic procedural administration uh, and how they lay in the workings of the sinews of revenue collection, patterns which would last deep into the colonial period. Hmm. Uh, Well, I'm going to skip one sort of region I looked at. I'm going to go straight to look at Allahabad, actually. Um, Allahabad settlement reveals some very interesting patterns that set the tone for the rest of the Do'ab. Acquired in 1801 from the Nawab of Awad, Allahabad, aside from its significance as a pilgrimage setting for various religious gatherings, melas, it was a stepping stone to the agrarian track up country and along the Grand Trunk Road, and it stood poised to offer sizable revenues to the company. Initial settlements began after 1803, and it was an area where Hindustan's paper managers shaped the early patterns of revenue administration. Allahabad's Kanungos worked with the British collector, Edward Cuthbert, and provided physical papers and histories of revenue returns which served as basis for negotiations with Tesildars, Zamindars, uh, and particularly those who held rent-free lands. Cuth- Cuthbert found them indispensable, noting that, quote, at present the Kanungos are the only constituted authorities to which to refer in questions of the revenue of the country, and the only persons who keep the accounts of the receipts of the Pargana's actual produce. Of course, the British had a keen interest in peeling these officers over to the company's governance. In the Allahabad district particularly, it was noted that one of the main services Kanungos provided was to, uh, to uh, Zamindars was to shield their land from assessment by the Nawabs through outright paper manipulation. So in a way, it was in Kaisa's own interest to work, to point out the new rules which landholders were engaged in and what India's and what India's new rulers would have equated with tax evasion. Similarly, in Kanpur in the 1820s, Various Kayasthas worked with the British collectors to identify additional sources of revenue from inherited property. In one case, the Kanungo of uh, Rasulabad brought to the attention lands which had a balance of nearly 3,000 rupees, and this had been sitting for decades, uncollected by the Nawabs. But the Kanungos noted to the British collector that when it passed from one sunsukroy to Munsab Subod via adoption, it meant that legally it was liable to taxation, because it was technically an estate transfer. Agra District's savage assessments after the 1810s were made possible by the cumulative actions of lesser well-known Indian actors. One was Chab Chand, a kanungo of Fatehpur Sikri. In 1822, he recovered revenue owed from one deceased Mir Malmasur, which added 200 rupees to the estate's assessment. This was one example of Chand's contributions to expanding the company rent roll. Locally, these kanungos could exercise an almost paper tyranny. They could adjust the grain estimate, or the kankut to punish or pamper loyal or disloyal cultivating castes, just as the Kaurian Bihar and the Ahirs of the Doab. For the British, it was naturally in their interest to employ these record holders and managers to give the factual sanction for their unrelenting tax demands, to help unearth to them uh, what was to them was the labyrinth of revenue administration, and to eventually, quote, settle the countryside, really through fiscal penetration. Uh, now, another noticeable aspect of the early fiscal state was how it tightened the margins of flexibility in installments in paying taxes. Now the Doab's pensmen sometimes forcefully assisted the company in ensuring the prompt payment of taxes, and here more lowly scribes were increasingly used to expose rent-free holdings and the hidings of various ashrafi and landed families. The Raja of Benares, Bolvan Singh, went so far as to even destroy the Kanungo's records that contravened his claims to sort of tax-free land. For the Raja, these physical papers were the only things that stood between himself and increased company taxation and British meddling. Kanungo papers were used to confirm mafi lands, which, like the Raja's case, was the difference between assessment or tax free or tax free. The differences in the seemingly clerical categorization could be the difference between status via dispensed patronage or something less so. And in so many cases across the Doab and Bihari country, Pensman assisted the company in expanding its fiscal clause. That's because they were the local repositories of fiscal knowledge, custom, and practice. As one settlement officer considered the kaista's seal, quote, the most trustworthy attestation to private deeds and agreements regarding landed property. Paper and factual sanction was what India's new rulers wanted, and, in, and Hindustan's pensman and kaistas had plenty of it to offer. Um, Another crucial dynamic we see in early colonial North India is that these scribes' uh, papers and rent rolls played an increasingly instructive role in uh, altering property rights and adjudicating land disputes after the 1780s. Here in Benares it's the real starting point with Jonathan Duncan. For example, Duncan gave Kanungos the authority to eject zamindars and leasing cultivators, or patadars, who refused to enter into agreement engagements with the company. In Allahabad later in 1808, a dispute broke out between one zamindar, Ganga Parshad, and the British collector. Um, Parshad claimed that his individual assessment was 50 rupees less than the previous years. Now Cuthbert proceeded to consult the kanungo, whose papers demonstrated that Parshad relinquished his zamindari rights, which had previously shielded him from the 50 rupee liability. Now Parshad tried to conceal this from the new figure of authority, but ended up failing when faced with the paper evidence in the audience of the kanungo and the British collector. He had his own property rights. Proprietary rights altered rapidly at a, a pen's stroke, and these scribes' paper, paper records played a role in the legalization of landholding. In judicial cases, Kanunga records were used by magistrates to decide between legitimate and spurious land claims. This happened repeatedly in Kanpur and Allahabad after 1803. And in the 1820s, a good number of Muhammadabad's uh, tessildars were ejected from their landholdings, and their lands put up for auction on the basis of the lack of documents on which quote, they rested their claims to have lands free of assessment. Here, simple, p- simple papal records were used to alter landholding patterns in order to maximize their taxable value for this new joint stock company. To the company, to company officers looking for historical continuity and precedent upon which to base their tax demands. The fiscal archives possessed by Kunungos were central. Uh, Another reason, I'm going to skip over the uh, section I have because of time on the expanding of the scope of assessment, but to surmise very quickly in a sentence. One thing that Caius has helped local British set up uh, settlement officers do is identify a substantial amount of uncultivated wastelands and to then sort of classify them as a, uh, accessible lands that can be sort of tilled and made for, rare, uh, made for agriculture. And They're actually very very crucial in, in terms of identifying uh, jungle tracks and identifying uh, well digging, sites for well digging actually. Um, it, it goes up in sort of like you know tens if not hundreds of square miles that we're talking about cumulatively. Um, in fact, in summary, we, I mean, from what I've estimated in the central Doab, in the middle Doab, total agricultural and by extension accessible land increased by 25% by the 1830s. Now there are crucial reasons why these more humble officers were so valuable for the company. One was fiscal assessment. Uh, many Kanungos, seeing the appetite of the colonial state, saw it in their interest to actually inflate assessments in areas with poor agricultural prospects. This made them immediately indispensable to the new state. Many company officers confirmed this and noted that that Canungos were as likely to inflate assessments as zamindars were likely to conceal them. And in many cases, Canungos' estimated assessments were in a way seductive to early British settlement officers. Their record's actual measurement, quote, "...generally gave a greater quantity of assessed lands than the original estimate." This happened in Agra after the mid-1810s, when Agra's assessment ramped up in 3 figure percentages. Here, in 1815, the collector Alexander Ross seemed to have relied heavily upon the written records of the city's kanungos. He had each kanungo make a survey, or a Nazarandaz of the quality of land under current cultivation, and their estimates were checked against the records of scribes uh, Belasrai, Laljimal, and Sheikh Ashraf. But the kanungo's records here gave a greater estimate of cultivated land, so at a pen stroke their tax base was widened by nearly sixteen thousand bigas, or about sixty five hundred acres of land, which ramped up the revenue demand the following year. And to boot, Ross assented to the Kanungos estimate that more wasteland could be brought under cultivation and, by extension, assessment. Similar developments took place in Kalpi in the 1820s, where the Kanungos estimates tended to be higher than those of the Tessildars. Even Governor General Moira noted in his diary written on the Ganges that one of the main blotches of the company's short 12 years of rule in the Doab was the acquisition of auctioned lands made possible by native officers, and he clearly had the kanungos of Hindustan in mind. The early company state also possessed an uh, unprecedented efficiency in collection. Raising assessments was one thing, but actually collecting them was a whole other, and the company became frightfully efficient at this. Uh, in the Doha between 1818 and the 1850s, the company collected 99.4% of assessed lands. In Azamgarh and Janpour, collectors even managed to collect more than the assessed amounts. If the Mughals attempted for generations to crack what John Richards called the hard cyst of village autonomy, the British were far more successful. They achieved it by piercing it with procedure, fiscal sovereignty, and through scribal papers whose weight was felt even in the most remote village. Uh, now I'm going to talk a bit about some of the continuity and change that takes place during this transition. Um, early British agrarian settlements, you know, they unleashed new forces of intensity and regularity into Indian governance. But at the same time, this newfound intensity lent weight to forces that encouraged very uneasy, coexisting sort of forces of continuity and change. Um, first, there was significant change in the fabric of revenue administration. By putting kanungos on a permanent regular footing, backed by funds paid out of the Benares treasury, the British firmly welded these old officers to the emergent state. Their paper paper skills and their actual paper repositories became stitched into the state's new prerogatives and also became legal government property. Anand Yang, in his examination of the Saran district of Bihar under the permanent settlement, has argued that kanungos lost out under the British. But if we take a broader look across the Doab, a lot of evidence actually points to the contrary. Many of the extant these extant scribes were quickly integrated into the colonial state's fiscal apparatus. Okay? So, for example, as early as the 1780s, Jonathan Duncan uh, hired Kanungos uh, and made them, quote, refashioned them into native registrars, and he saw them as indispensable. The collector of Kanpur in 1807 allowed their replacements, when a Kanungo died, to come from the same family. He said, "...where the heir of any kanungo may be found capable, he should be preferable by the collector in his nomination for the sanction of government." In these early years, the company entrenched certain kanungo lineages, even if they cut down the overall number. And they were even made to take oath to provide true testimony under the penalty of adharma. Still these scribes did experience significant change. Much of their daily workplace rhythms and aesthetics were radically altered. As Kanungos and Patwaris, you know, Kayasthas were transformed from from Persian literate gentlemen who managed revenue and distantly symbolized courtly culture into clerks who represented the emergent colonial state's bureaucratic and utilitarian authority. They were more bound by regulation than they had been under the Shia Nawabs. Kayasthas became more regularized officers, bound by timesheets, increasing paper regulation, and, after the 1830s, by a new official language of governance. Increasingly, they had to account for a new calendar, what they called uh, Tagvime Inglisi, in conjunction with the Fossili calendar. After the 1830s, they had to master a new calendar with markedly different seasonal and liturgical rhythms compared to both the Persian and the Fossili versions. Um, I'm going to have to skip ahead for time. Oh, I think we can say actually do this quickly because this is really quite juicy and rich. Uh, the scribe Mall, who we just talked about before, again offers another example of how some of these scribes negotiated the, the changes between empires. In the early 19th century, one of the most rankling questions for these new pensmen was that while the company used the Fasli and Persian lexicon of revenue, their dates were often side-noted with the Gregorian calendar. Now, Mal Ma- observed that this could cause irregularities in documenting harvests and collection dates. He noted that while the Fasli calendar was well suited to the rhythms of India's monsoon cycle, English seasons were disjointed from India's agricultural rhythms. Some months covered different lunar and solar periods. Mal therefore instructed a codex to calculate which Fasli months corresponded with what he called English months or Inglishima. He wrote that while the company's calendar was based on the age of Jesus, Hazrat Isa, the months were set and inflexible. But the Persian calendar, the Tagvim e-Farsi, he calls it, and the Fasli calendar, which he called the Tagvim e-Padishahi, were calibrated with the actual changes in seasons. Now this caused confusion, Mal noted, for anyone who wanted to know the rhythms of the company's new collectors' movements and demands needed this codex. So specifically, he wrote that while months in these calendars normally had 30 to 31 days, the Gregorian calendar had the odd month of February with only a stupid, what he called a stupid amount of 28 days. Mal noted that this codex was constructed to help, to est- uh, to help estimate the duration of the Rabi and Khurif seasons and harvests and to keep the pulse of a re- revenue administration consistent. He specifically wrote a chart to help distinguish between revenue agreements, bandobasts, uh, done according to the Fasli season and how they corresponded with English dates. Now, uh, in the last five minutes, I'm going to wrap up very quickly um, uh, right here. Um, the effects of this, I'm going to go st- jump straight to the conclusion, I think that's best. Um, one of the major themes of this paper, and, in, and indeed of the book, it has engaged with is the question of state formation. Okay? Uh, while this paper has been only cursory, uh, it's tried to lay emphasis upon some of the more significant changes that take place in North India, particularly in terms of fiscal practice. Um, It's argued that for a new way of interpreting the emergence of the colonial state in India by specifically looking at the role of fiscalism, paper, and documentation. These scribal paper managers, combined with 18th century patterns of agrarian taxation, were vital for the emergence of modern patterns of governance in South Asia. The origins of these trends can be found in the 18th century India's political regionalization, which unleashed aggressive trends in assessment and managing revenue. This doubled in intensity with the company's agrarian revenue settlements, and these negotiations and regu- regulations were some of the most important early tendrils of the company's state. Questions of, of revenue were, of course, equally matters of legal landholdings, inheritance, and personal law. The embryonic systems of police and law, whilst adopted and unchanged, in increasingly orbited around the need to secure revenue for Britain's Indian Empire. And what this was particularly the case with colonial law and how it came to anchor fiscal administration. And because of this, the governance in South Asia by 1850 had become far more paper-oriented and bureaucratic than it had ever been before. The British, early on, altered the intensity and punctuality of revenue collection and anchored these processes more firmly in, in political authority. Compared to previous Indian sovereigns, the British were unbending with regard to the regularity, intensity, and paper orientation of land revenue, or what they called, quote, the one great customary source of fiscal wealth in India. British revenue collection had little patience for the process of settlement. It cared more for its expedient ends and bottom lines. This was reflected in the, in the more intense legal sanction the company gave to surveying property rights and the enforcement of payment through courts and under magistrates. It had to be irrefutable and non-contestable. Indeed, Muzaffar Alam has demonstrated how the Nawabi and Sikh domains in the 18th century were hamstrung by gaps between what they calculated as assessment and what they actually collected but the british eliminated this gap with bureaucratic intensity regardless of its impacts upon agrarian markets landholding patterns and sometimes the literal stomachs of india's cultivators they transformed the late mughal fiscal military state to that of a fiscal bureaucratic one and they were able to more successfully weld hindustan scribes to political authority than the mughals 18th century avatars and this is where a significant portion of their success lay in the conquest of north india specifically in the doab Caius the became the go-to scribes the early com- for the early company's fiscal clause that reached into villages. They provided the rent rolls, uh, the sanads, and the property registered that allowed the company to pump out unprecedented amounts of wealth. Um, the other main aim of this book and paper has been to shed new light upon the history of the scribe, uh, really as an active agent of historical change, or, or a more important one than I think our historiography has accorded. Uh, These North Indian pensmen provided essential fiscal documentation to rulers in 18th and 19th century India, which in turn facilitated the emergence of modern paper-driven administrations. The British were fortunate, for they were able to corral these officers and weld their skills to state prerogatives with a newfound intense regularity. And they, in turn, helped the company pump out substantial amounts of wealth and fiscal wealth. Kayastha's repository paper skills meshed very well with the more procedural nature of the company's fiscalism. Uh, This book has also engaged with uh, Bhavani Raman's recent work on South Indian scribes. Uh, Now Raman has painted a a picture of a South Indian scribe's world being transformed by the changing value of paper and attestation in uh, early colonial India. She's argued that changing values in paper which in process ate away at the mnemonic traditions of Tamil scribes, uh, consequently led to a wholly altered world in which South Indian scribes worked. Again, comparisons with North India offer some interesting perspectives. In the South, by comparison, there was a lesser perhaps Indo-Islamic administrative tradition that could be felt. In the Doab, for example, the value of paper partially explains the absence of mnemonic traditions that were pronounced in the Tamil lands. Raman also... Uh, seems to ascribe a little less agency to these scribes, seeing them in some ways as passive functionaries in a British-driven colonial state. But this paper and book have argued that uh, these North Indian kaistas were able to shape substantially changes uh, through their fiscal records, land acquisition, when it came to the settlement of agrarian districts. And this became so marked that by, 19, by 1900, Kayasthas were so marked as a service caste that their ability to mold North India's governance led to numerous calls from British officialdom to cut down their numbers. Uh, Alan Octavian Hume called for the colonial, colonial government to, quote, tax the Kayasthas, who, while growing rich by the pen, oust their betters from their ancestral holdings, and then are too great cowards to wield a sword, either protect their own acquisitions, or to aid the government which has fostered their success. Um, so, very quickly, we can take a step back and talk about bureaucratic organization. Um, The present work here can also be enriched by engaging probably with a broader literature on bureaucracy and economic formation in modern states. Uh, Recent work by the economist David Allen on the institutional revolutions of modern economies offers a useful comparison for India. Now, Allen has argued that the emergence of measuring and standardization was crucial in the rise of modern states noting that the aim of modern states was to eliminate variability and vagaries, whether it be in weather, agricultural forecasting, or fiscal planning. And colonial India was a perfect example. Averages and procedural paperwork were to whisk away the vagaries of the monsoon that had tempered pre-colonial rulers for centuries. The British ruthlessly eliminated numerous gaps and what they called irregularities of the fiscal agrarian world between assessment and actual collections, between knowledge of the past and present tax rates, and between what they called Indian Medationness and British, quote, truthfulness. All in quotations, naturally. And of course, lastly, the ghost of Max Weber hangs over any discussion on bureaucracy and organizational rationality. Um, Weber's more famous concept of a rational legal authority has unavoidable echoes in the Indian context. Um, and this paper has attempted to show that in looking closer at these late, early, like, early, these early pre-colonial fiscal traditions and practices, that the dichotomy between a traditional, what he called the Mughals, a patrimonial bureaucracy and a modern rationalist bureaucracy, looks a bit less, a bit more suspicious. Um, this is partially because 18th century India was already very paper-intensive and regional kingdoms were becoming increasingly so. What the British did was to rationalize the system to some degree between 1780 and 1830. And the legal anchoring of fiscalism was a perfect example, as was cutting down the uh, of a mass subordinate group of subordinate Indian revenue officers. The British eliminated the moral interconnected binding that character- characterized 18th-century fiscal practices. The British rendered it impersonal through paper and procedure. But specific documentation and fiscal intelligence that the British sought out—the jama bandis, hastabuds, and also the very important one, revenue installments, kistabandis. Uh, were, to a degree, already depersonalized. This is precisely why they were factual, and this is precisely why the company sought them out with such intensity, and the officers who held those papers. The company's paperage, in a way, was only partially Weber- Weberian. But more importantly, the whole process of bureaucratization uh, was not simply an appendage to larger changes in state formation in late 18th and early 19th century India. The mastery of fiscalism through paper was central to the rise of the East India Company's empire uh, and indeed the emergence of modern forms of Indian uh, state organization. Okay, let's leave it there.